In a world where planet-threatening, civilization-ending, humanity-uniting movie tropes lie scattered throughout a sea of film, one disaster response expert, with the help of her plucky producer sidekick, will gather together a panel of experts to discuss. Wait, what? Why the f did they do that? That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. Hi, welcome to Disaster Peace Theater. I'm Anna, and I'm joined by always on, never lagging Rev. This week, we are looking at Live Free or Die Hard. Released in 2007, 19 years after the original Die Hard, this is the fourth movie in the franchise. We follow Bruce Willis's McLean as he is tasked with getting a hacker from New York to Washington, D.C. Upon his arrival in D.C., all hell breaks loose, and he reluctantly teams up with the hacker played by Justin Long to stop Timothy Oliphant's mastermind hacker from enacting his fire sale. There are car chases, explosions, more car chases, jets firing missiles, a semi-truck lair, and McLean falling on, off, and through all sorts of set pieces. McLean, as always, comes through defeating the bad guy and saving the United States from total digital collapse. And we are joined by my very good friend, Merritt Bear. Uh, Merritt, do you want to go ahead and uh, introduce yourself? Um, hi, yes. Uh, Merritt Bear, I am a principal in the office of the CISO here at AWS, and I um, live in Miami. I came about four years ago uh, to Amazon from U.S. government. Uh, I've worked in security work in all three branches there, run my own shop for a while. Um, and you were in D.C. during the anthrax scares, right? So I was in, yes, I mean, there were a number, right? I was in D.C. Yeah. 2010 to 2020, basically. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that really dated this movie for me, besides all the tech, was the using the anthrax alarm. I was like, there's no anthrax alarm. That's a fire alarm. Also, not how anthrax is distributed. Yeah. I mean, anthrax itself could be distributed through the air. Like you could actually just like use a fog disperser because of the type of spore it is. Like you could disperse it that way. That's why everyone was worried about the envelopes because when you pull it open, it puffs out. Right. So right. you could do that. In theory. But how, how would you set off an anthrax alarm? Like, yeah. how, do they have sensors for that? So yeah, I, already I was just like, Mm, but like, I think with movies like this, I always see the subtext in the title and it's just fuck physics, like <laughs> fast and the furious fuck physics. Like how I explain <laughs> fast and the furious to my mom is it's a cartoon, but with real people. Yeah. So physics don't matter. So I at least went into this, having seen all the other diehards where Bruce Willis goes through stuff that would have put him in the ICU at least 12 times as like, okay, I can at least suspend the disbelief on the physics. One of the things where I was like, really, was the helicopters. So after 9-11, when the Pentagon was hit by an airplane, there are incredibly strict flight rules over D.C. You'd not only have had to have, quote unquote, hacked the airplane systems to be able to look like you're an actual FBI plane, but also you'd constantly have to be in radio contact. And those are analog. Those are not like at that time period, that would have been radios and like you would have had Coast Guard helicopters patrol the area, armed helicopters, which the Coast Guard doesn't have many armed helicopters, but then jets would have been scrambled. And then these guys are flying like 200 feet off the deck and like in a city that's nigh on to impossible. Like during Katrina and, and other urban rescue situations, 
one of the problems is you can't get a helicopter that low. The wash messes up things. I just, I was like, <laughs> in our pre-conversation, you can tell if you, if someone has lived in DC, they can also watch the movie and know that it was not filmed in DC anyway. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> um, well, another thing was like, you would never ever have no matter what they thought the terrorist truck was, you wouldn't have that kind of aircraft shooting missiles at it in a U.S. city. <laughs> and what happens in the movie is exactly why you wouldn't do that, is because he accidentally hits the freaking strut on a bridge and just goes squish, 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 all the way down. I'm like, and there's why you weren't allowed to do that. Well, granted, like the entire movie is kind of a lesson in like, if we don't necessarily stick to reality, we can make it seem more exciting. Like the the culmination where they realize that there's this facility in Woodlawn. So it starts out being the Social Security Administration. And then like, oddly, there's an NSA site that's embedded. And I mean, like, None of this is reality. And then layer on top of that, the fact that we've got a mix between all these kinds of like security entities from FBI to local PD to, uh, you know, the NSA, which does nation state level code breaking and spy operations. Now, all of a sudden, we've also embedded that in what are domestic civilian entities. And then meanwhile, they say, yes, and they've got the entire American or maybe it was international banking systems data there, like all of which is not something that the U.S. government would ever be storing the data for. Those are private companies. Like we have blurred so many lines of the road that it's like really actually impossible to um, point to the problem because it's kind of everywhere. I think you bring up a really good point right there is, and this is something that, you know, with, with your background within tech is um, good to understand. So there was all this scare that the NSA was looking into everything and tracking literally everything. But can you explain to us just from a security perspective, like how are these things, like, how does this actually work? Like, you know, wh where would the data be stored and can people actually like, because you just said that you couldn't just suck it all in. And we were joking that what happened? They flipped a switch and all the data died in other places and is only in this place. <laughs> like, how does how does that work now? So I would say, you know, and and with the caveat that I am not a, you know, Pentagon lawyer or anything right now. Um, but I think, you know, there's there's important things to recognize around both authorities, which are basically, you know, which government entity owns what and, and how they can legitimately use those kinds of powers. Um, so law enforcement is looking for the bad guy and they're actually trying to get enough evidence that they can put them behind bars. That's a win for law enforcement um, and or deterrence because they've put them behind bars, right? Um, Intel community. So um, oh, I should have said law enforcement is folks like FBI, you know, police uh, and mm -hmm. Uh, Secret Service. And, and so this does span multiple entities and agencies. The intelligence community, so we're talking about NSA, uh, DISA, um, CIA, obviously, are doing what intelligence collections do, which have existed before the internet and exist now that internet exists and digital footprints and everything exists, uh, which are to, you know, follow and, and collect data and break codes and try to um, collect intelligence, as the name implies. Um, and those sometimes come into friction with each other because they, um, you know, law enforcement wants to catch the 
person and, and intelligence often wants to watch them. Um, and then uh, there is kind of the resiliency, um, you know, cybersecurity in terms of uh, keeping the lights on uh, in a colloquial sense, which is primarily DHS, although sometimes that is other things. Well, first of all, it's, it's primarily privately owned. So things like banks and even critical infrastructure, right, is primarily privately owned. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the U.S. government side, it's it's entities like DHS, um, you know, the FCC, the FTC. Um, and I will put another um, layer on that, which is among those, they have different uh, authorities. So everything from um, rulemaking powers uh, that are, uh, you know, regulators to folks who can issue um, other types of mandates or folks who just give guidance, uh, you know, folks mm-hmm. um, like DHS um, in partnership with NIST that often give these kind of frameworks that are guidance. So anyway, there's there's a lot of nuance and it's gotten even more um, critical that we understand that in light of the fact that today, the internet on which everyone runs their infrastructure um, is primarily privately owned and operated. Um, And as you point to, plenty of agencies are running on critical infrastructure that's a mix of public and private. Um, And so there's a lot of nuance there. and, And the movie just kind of glosses over that and also kind of glosses over real life aspects of, you know, at one point they're like, this guy got into, you know, the entirety of the American infrastructure with a laptop. So they talked about the fire sale. First of all, is that actually a term? Like I've heard the term in a colloquial sense. I've never heard of it as, so we should probably define it in the movie. They say they're trying to do a fire sale. They're basically trying to do like cascading effects where they will take out various parts of infrastructure and end up, and the motivation is odd, but by the end they say it's money motivated, but at some points it seems like he was just mad that no, there's like a bad guy who was working for U.S. government, who pointed out all the holes in security and no one listened to him. So that's part of the motivation, allegedly. Uh, But anyway, so yes, I've never heard of a fire sale. Yeah, they said first it was like they were going through all these things. The one that hit me, though, was when the power went out. And when the power went out, I thought that one was kind of interesting, especially because we've seen like what hackers did to the pipeline on the East Coast. You know, this idea that our power grids and our infrastructure when it comes to power generation and fuel and all that is so delicate. Could they shut down the entire country? There's no such thing as like the grid as a single entity. This is like when people were talking about like the internet kill switch, right? It's not a, it's not a single thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, critical infrastructure is distributed. It's owned by a variety of folks. You even look at like undersea cables, right? Those are an amalgam of owners and there's a lot, they get regulated by the FCC, for example, um, and we feel the effects here and there, but there are there's no like one switch. Um, in some ways, you know that would be convenient um, because we could you know do firmware upgrades or something. Uh, but like in reality, that's just not how it plays out. These are really distributed, broad, ugly kind of systems. Um, I say that just because they're just like messy. You know, it's really hard to know exactly. And and so that is certainly not something that any one bad actor can, can do much about um, from a technical perspective. And of course, um, we're constantly trying to, we like, folks who work for government or for, uh, you know, 
security uh, roles in any company and for security companies and for uh, American critical infrastructure, like are always trying to make things more resilient and more robust. Um, but there's no like one one point of failure. There, yeah. there are a lot of, for better or worse, there are, you know, and usually in these movies, it kind of presumes some kind of artificial uh, single threadedness that is mm-hmm. not that is not real. One other thing we had talked about a little bit was this idea of the insider threat, because the insider threat is always something that like comes up in a lot of conversations. And this idea of keeping your system secure from the people who maybe built it. And in this movie that comes up, Gabriel, the bad guy, um, built like he was the architect or whatever. They don't even explain what he did to build it. So like he could have like hammer and nail built the building for the way they explain it. But like, if you have someone build a system like that, don't you have security protocols in place that if they leave, there's a way to make sure they can't come back in and you know basically <laughs> fuck up your shit? So first of all, in practice, there is, like I said, no one human who built the entirety of the U.S. defense you know, apparatus. Um, not only has it been sort of cobbled together and grown up over time, um, but there are intentional and deliberate you know, rules of the road around um, oversight and internal and external IT maintenance. This is another thing that they conflate, which is basically the difference between what each uh, U.S. government agency's role is and how they maintain their internal infrastructure. So, you know, there would be some team of folks and a lot of times someone like USDS right now, right, might help them grow up in terms of just like implementing HTTPS on their websites. And we've made a lot of strides in this around those kind of common sense measures. And uh, and then, of course, like DHS or any other sort of cyber mission and what they do with their external customers. And I use the term customers, but we're talking about like stakeholders, you know, folks mm-hmm. who... So yeah, of course, like not only would this Gabriel guy not necessarily know how they have their guts built just because he might be working on cybersecurity on behalf of DOD. I think he was supposed to be a DOD employee. Yeah. But also he would have no bearing talking about DHS, uh, which would be the you know financial coordinator or the SEC, which would be the financials regulator or the FCC, which would you know maintain a lot of these telecom uh, security protocols, including undersea cables or the FTC, who'd be looking after consumers and whether you're interacting in secure ways as an entity. You know, like there's all these things that like in some ways, I think it's distinct, of course, for the U.S., right? Because we are deliberately sometimes providing friction between public and private, but also between entities that are government. Um, And although it can be a little bit frustrating to try to get stuff done in this system, we also, I think, sometimes have deliberate uh, bureaucracy so that there can't be not just like bad actors who are, you know, savants like this guy is supposed to be, but also, you know, bad actors who come into power who might, uh, you know, gain a lot of wherewithal. And then, you know, like there's there's sort of deliberately only so much you can do even legitimately over four years. Um, Because I think the premise is that unlike some systems uh, where government and and private sector are much more entwined, we uh, keep a sort of arm's length distance between folks. And I think there's a lot of texture there and it, and it Mm -hmm. continues to be an area that folks both, I think, 
uh, see room for improvement and coordination, but also should recognize there's some value there in having those not be aligned all the time. Yeah, it's it's kind of natural gating with having them not quite line up. Yeah, private companies are accountable to revenue, to shareholders, to mm-hmm. their board, to you know, like, and U.S. government is accountable to American public and um, is you know, well, mostly, <laughs> mind you, after the <laughs> OPM hack. So the OPM hack is, for those of you who don't know, uh, basically someone got into the office personnel management and got a whole bunch of information on those of us who had top secret clearances. And if you've never been through a top secret clearance um, investigation, it it they basically know everything about you down to the size of your underwear. Like they go back, if you were married before, they talk to your ex-husband, they talk to friends you had in high school. Um, but, you know, there's there's all of those security checks and that got hacked. Um, the other thing that I was watching when I realized when this movie happened, I was thinking about the Coast Guard, obviously. And I was thinking to myself, back then, the Coast Guard's webpage, not to mention, I'm not, I can't talk about the internal systems, obviously. Um, but let's just say they couldn't have hacked in just because the systems were so antiquated compared to everyone else's. Um, but the webpage at the time was 70, 500 approximately hard-coded pages as in there was no content management system there was it was literally just straight up i mean with html1 still in it pages you can't hack that like you can't take down a web page that is just straight up hard-coded and like all the historians pages were jpegs or or pdfs you can't hack that. The only thing you could do was like try to cut it off at the root and just shut the whole page down. But I used to laugh that the Coast Guard had the most secure web page around because it literally was just individual HTML pages. Yeah, I, I interviewed at the NSA once and um, all their phones are rotary. Um, and I sort of chatted with the woman who was, you know, bringing me from place to place who is like escorting me. She had been working there for like 60 years. Her daughter also worked there. You know, a lot <laughs> of a lot of analog security ends up working. Um, mm-hmm. That being said, of course, when it's down, it's down or when it's out of date, it's mm-hmm out of date. Um, For listeners who are kind of curious about uh, the the security apparatus and the the beauty and the horror, I think those are interesting. For most folks these days, I think if you're working in what is probably a more dynamic enterprise or, you know, even if you work at a school or a hospital or a a park, um, you'll have the need to do stuff that is not hard coded and you'll want yep. to, right. And, yeah. and you'll see those too. And mm-hmm. there's, there are definitely ways to be more um, cognizant and still keep everything fresh when it comes to security perspectives, because I think there's also this danger that folks, you know, wear their tinfoil hats and think I'm going to be secure <laughs> because I don't bring my, you know, cell phone to this March or something. And actually we know on human levels, you also compromise some security when you don't have, you know, avenues to get out of that March, for example. Yeah. One other thing that I'd love to hear your opinion on, obviously we know that like most of the stuff that happened in the movie, that's not how it works. Um, But I mean, like I love the movie hackers and we know that's not how it works either. Like you don't get a giant cookie monster eating the, eating your bites across the screen. But um since that movie came out, the cloud is now way more prevalent than it was in that movie. You know, this idea of on-prem for anyone has kind of become not laughable, but like why, like, 
I guess I would say like so much has moved into the cloud and so much is, has changed the model of how it works. I kind of think they'd have to rewrite this whole movie. Well, I mean, besides like the fact that you and I both giggle over pretty much the whole movie, but like for, in order for him, for them to do what they were doing today, they'd have to deal with someone like an AWS or a Microsoft or something, because a lot of these government agencies, now the NSA not included, are not even on prem anymore. Well, so obviously I won't comment on exactly who runs on AWS, but yes, oh, some yeah, of yeah. The, certainly some of the U.S. government does. Everyone knows that, and some yep. of the IC does, um, which is is public knowledge. But yeah, I think on the one hand, I'm like, oh, remember, I know we're not really contained by reality here, so yeah, that's giving a lot of <laughs> um, so maybe not because I actually think cloud might be like, look we got an AWS snowball and now we're going to like take over the entire world. And I'm like, hey, let's see what we are doing with snowballs. Well, at least the snowball is bigger than the laptop. It is. It actually is. Or like an outpost, you know, has actually quite a lot of commute. Um, and you could have out of band communications. You could mm -hmm. have resiliency. Yeah. Well, and it would survive falling off a plane. Um, a snowball edge would survive. They are, I think it's 50 meters right now. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Anna, you should give a little um, background, which is kind of cool in real world. One of the things that Anna and I worked on when she was working at AWS was she was helping me um, up level on everything. I Because I'm a security person, obviously, mm -hmm. but part of security is resiliency and, and in the CIA triad, right? Availability. Um, I think folks over-index sometimes on confidentiality and integrity, and those are important, but like it's got to run too, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things she helped me with was speaking to a Honolulu audience about some case studies around bad day scenarios, like on a volcano. Mm -hmm. on Yeah, that's how Mary and I met each other was when I was the head of global disaster response for AWS. And so the snowball, basically in layman's terms, it's a portable AWS, it's, it's portable storage, but the edge actually has some compute power too. So the ways I used it when I was using it for um, disaster response was we would deploy them down to like after Hurricane Dorian hit, we deployed a few of them down with drones to basically use uh, SageMaker Neo, the light version. Um, that's an AI algorithm that we used to identify where cars were or where people were so that instead of having to try and fly helicopters over the top, you actually could fly grids with the drones and let the responders know faster where to go. So the Snowball Edge um, and the snowball itself, and now there's a snow cone, which is a small one, fits in your backpack. Um, their whole purpose is basically to take the cloud to places where the cloud might not be at that time. Um, originally, the snowballs were actually used to bring people into the cloud. They would download the information into them, the snowball would be sent back to AWS, and AWS would upload it. Then they found that there were all these other uses for it. Uh, in St. Kitts, for example, they have snowball edges that they run in their government so that if they get hit by a hurricane, they can continue to run their government without external internet connectivity. Um, yep. So that's what these devices are. They've gotten basically both bigger and smaller. Like yeah. you can have them even more compact and you can also have snowmobiles that are the size of a semi truck. Yeah, literally the snowmobile is a semi. Yep, it's fascinating. It's yep. pretty cool. But one of our favorite things about them in disaster response was they're incredibly uh, sturdy. Like you can drop them out of six floor story building. They're fine. Uh, they can be in freezing conditions. They can be in desert conditions. They're incredibly durable. So they're really useful for um, 
disaster scenarios. And actually, they'd have been useful in that truck the guy was driving around. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just get a couple snowball edges in there so when he goes under a bridge, he can keep doing his work and Call right. it good. Yep, exactly. And as you kind of allude to, so for folks who like don't live in sort of what cloud is, what it also means is that you then, if you were to, you know, take data that you had previously locally stored, whether in your own data center or just like on your set of, you know, servers in your basement, um, you know, you now have the ability to replicate across multiple availability zones or regions, you know, you can, you have that tactile ability. And so I think it actually, you know, you made me think as you were talking, not only could you have, because I have customers today who may be just like extremely intolerant of downtime and um, less cost uh, conscious who say, Mm -hmm. I want to have like an outpost everywhere and I'm just going to make sure that no downtime occurs. Right. Um, an outpost is one that has, uh, the ability to compute as well. And, and really what it, what cloud means is that you're able to kind of like take what feels like that compute, um, you know, storage compute database, those, those services that you're, uh, otherwise expecting to need connectivity for and to be able to um, have them be um, not only highly available, but also um, redundant, resilient, you know, so there's a lot of um, comfort mm-hmm. for folks who are concerned around disaster recovery, whether that means natural disasters or ransomware. One other thing we talked about briefly was um, what would happen at the hospital because yep. all the power had been knocked out. Now, after Hurricane Katrina, most hospitals um, have learned you've got to have generators. So a lot of hospitals, I won't say all, but the majority of big hospitals have on-site generators that allow them to keep critical machines running. Otherwise, the death toll in this movie would be insane. Like the death toll in this movie would be hundreds of thousands of people um, because of the way they knocked out the power grid. But like the other thing that's different now is that um, when we talk about like phones and capabilities, there's organizations like the ITDRC um, and they basically are a tech group of tech volunteers that if you were to have all the power or the Wi-Fi knocked out in an area by an earthquake, a terrorist attack, something like that, these people come together and like help set up stuff that can help with that. Um, you know, like we just saw, we're seeing some of that stuff being shipped to the Ukraine right now to help with internet connectivity. So you'd still have the hospitals online today and you actually would be able to get internet back pretty quickly. Um, using like the WiMAX systems or basically satellite systems. Um, but of course that, again, unless they were smart enough to take out the satellite systems, because in this magical world, all they have to do is boop a button and it all, <laughs> it all goes away. It's very hard to know where to pull at the threats. <laughs> right. But in reality, um, in the real world, there are ways to get, um, there's a great group called Project Owl and they have these little things, they call them ducks and they have little Raspberry Pis in them. They're basically um, Wi-Fi repeaters that float. And so they actually can disperse them in an area, and you can make sure that the people impacted by the disaster still have emergency signal because, you know, that's a good way for responders to find them. So you'd be able to disperse a system like that throughout D.C. to make sure that there was still connectivity. And then people could use, you know, VoIP instead of... When, when the one guy's like, get me a landline, I was like, 
even back then, landlines were kind of digitized. Do you think that's going to still work? Yeah, it was all, I mean, that's the problem with this movie, right? Is it's hard to tell whether any of these emergency groups were able to act or whether they were also impacted. In reality, like this was like a truly sort of doomsday Armageddon, you know, fake scenario. In reality, as we have pointed to, usually there is more nuance. So even in real world scenarios where it's really bad. So you look Mm -hmm. at, you know, tragic, you look at volcanoes or terrorist attacks or wars, like the, it's just not expansive to the point where like, there's nothing ever anywhere. Mm -hmm. You navigate through the facts of, of the actual situation. And you find, I think, um, creative and often, um, you know, uh, kind of distributed ways to Mm -hmm. get, uh, connectivity, uh, and other, uh, sustenance to folks. But I also thought of, you know, what I think is an important distinction, which is that as you bring up war, like, you know, these capabilities that this alleged bad guy kind of knew about are all supposed to be the kinds of uh, capabilities that we are talking about are, you know, as you mentioned, acts of Congress Mm -hmm. that would have kinds of like protections, but also that like have no authority to be used. Like this guy would not have the nuclear codes or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, like there are like, there are um, national emergencies like Katrina um, that, that happen and that we like hope never to have to re-experience, but we are hopeful that we will be prepared to confront better in future Mm -hmm. or whatever. This guy being like a DOD guy, just always like it rubbed me the wrong way because the idea is that like even the capabilities that he's supposed to be salty about that they weren't securing, like those are supposed to be used for other nation states. So why are we talking about him deploying (laughs) those? You know, like, it's just, so messy in their narrative. Yeah. But there was one scene when he is in the Social Security Administration in Woodlawn and then in the NSA in the Social Security Administration, which allegedly has all of the financial data. Then he needs to gain entrance to a locked door and he like has like a physical key card that looks like a credit card and he like kisses it for good luck before he like thinks he's like hacking he guesses like two strings of numbers wait you mean to tell me that the nsa doesn't use the same kind of door that like the (laughs) holiday inn does first of all like even unsophisticated hackers would be like this would take a while like brute forcing something the whole definition is like how much compute do you have right and how much time do you have um but he was like Good thing that only took 13 seconds. <laughs> like, Anyway, if anyone was concerned, uh, um, look, the U.S. government is not perfect, but we do it pretty well. You know, like <laughs> it would not take 15 seconds and one dude. Oh, wait, we missed a really good one, Anna, that would be good for you, which is the delete key blows up the computer. Oh, yeah. I was actually going to ask you about that. Like. The delete key. So first of all, why the delete key? Because you should always get it right the first time when you're coding, Anna. (laughs) (laughs) But wouldn't you notice the C4 strapped to the back of your computer? Like, That's what I'm wondering. Like, Yeah, the screen glitched, and that's what let them know it was wrong. Also, if you wanted to murder them, why would you make it glitch? Just make it explode when it gets powered on. The moment you touch the keyboard, (laughs) it explodes. Done. If I was going to kill someone, like, why would I make it some sort of dramatic screen glitch? (laughs) Right? Just 
I pushed a button and it exploded. <laughs> well, I mean, now we're getting into screenwriting a little bit with the idea of the explosives on the laptop going off when you hit delete. You know, I think that it was a Hitchcock who talks about what's more suspenseful watching a dinner scene where you see that someone has a knife in their lap underneath the table from the beginning and waiting to see what they do with it? Or is it more suspenseful to have like a normal calm dinner and then the knife is revealed a few minutes into the dinner? I mean, both of those scenes sound better than this movie, so. <laughs> <laughs> so Rev, do you want to ask the, the favorite final question? Yes. Yeah, so how would you solve this movie in like the first three minutes? Oh, well, first of all, I'd fix our government clearing process because I think we should be asking questions like, have you ever seen him abuse animals and or women? Um, mm -hmm. uh, I think we have, you know, very outdated. Um, and I'm not speaking. I should have given this disclaimer at the beginning. I'm not speaking on behalf of Amazon for any of this. But having worked there, I just think. As Anna alluded to, there's like a very in-depth clearance process, most of which was um, cursory and um, not very illuminative. Um, so, you know, I think we should be cognizant of the, you know, the kinds of trust that we put in individuals. But I also would say, look, the whole thing would be avoided if you would put security groups in. Like, you just need a, an enterprise governance system that allows, like, and you see this occasionally where folks will say, oh, we had an intern who went over you know, their permissions. Like, why would mm. you let your intern go over their permissions? And I don't mean to be not empathetic. Like, it's tough to manage everything, but you should never be allowing folks to have access to crown jewels who don't need access to it. And you should be doing intelligent pruning. Um, and there's all the tools to do that today to know. Um, so basically, if the bad guy had you know, no, the reason I start with the human layer is that if he didn't have the wherewithal to take everyone hostage, like the entire city or country, he still may have been acting out against individuals and may have been a really dangerous psychopath, which it seems like he was. Um, and those guys usually take it out on women and animals. Um, and I think that, you know, that issue is not solved, but at least he wouldn't have gotten closer to other government secrets. In practice, I think enterprise security um, best practices would have also addressed basically any of the um, escalating permissions that they kind of <laughs> pretended were a given here. How would you solve it? Uh, I'll let Rev go first. Oh, how would I solve it? I would. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna solve it like this was an action movie, not okay. in reality. Okay. I'm gonna solve it by if I'm if I'm on the other side, I'm Justin Long in this movie. I'm going to I'm going to hack into the satellites and see how it is they're getting their internet and their cloud, right? Cuz they're obviously they're using something specific to get all of their knowledge out and their information out while they're driving in a semi. And I'm going to find whichever one they're bouncing all of their information off of and then I'm going to hack into another satellite and fly it into that satellite and destroy it. <laughs> so you're action movie realities. Okay. That that's fair. <laughs> Um, I actually was thinking something kind of in between the two of them. <laughs> uh, one of them is, yeah, they need to fix their, like, just better security groups um, instead of physical running around policing. Um, a lot of this would have been battled in actual, like, command centers, not in, 
you know, running around with Bruce Willis. But um, yeah, and then there's got to be a way to track that truck. First of all, the fact that there's a semi driving around downtown DC, um, I would, yeah, I would have tried to track where the truck was and then just disable the truck because he was in that truck for most mm. of the time. But yeah, that's pretty much how I would have done it. I'd have been like, all right, let's see if we can track any of this. Um, and then, yeah, reports like you got to look for the weirdness and sorry, but a giant truck just randomly driving around anyone who's been to downtown DC driving those big ass trucks down there is nigh on to impossible. And where are they going to refuel at? It's a lot of mileage. <laughs> well, thank you, Merritt. This was fun. It was perhaps too much fun. All right. Well, thank you listeners for joining us. We'll catch you next time on disaster piece theater. This episode of Disaster Peace Theater, hosted by Anna Visneski, was edited and produced by Brandon Wentz, with intro by Dan Cruiser and Chris Hill. You can contact us, learn more about the hosts, and check out our merch store at disasterpeacetheater.wtf.